Welcome to GovCon Live. This is the second episode of our series on commercial businesses new to government contracting. In this episode, Nicole Atala and Sarah Nash cover labor and employment issues unique to government contractors. Before we join the discussion, we have some business to handle. This podcast is for informational purposes only. We are not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply. And the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. Let's get started. Hi, and welcome to this installment of Flair Mazza's Commercial Businesses New to Government Contracting podcast series. My name is Nicole Atala. I'm the chair of the Labor and Employment Group here at Flair Mazza, and I'm happy to be here today to talk to you about why labor and employment matters for government contractors, particularly for those who are new to government contracting. Hi, and I'm Sarah Nash. I'm a partner in Polaro Maz's labor and employment practice. I work alongside with Nicole, and I'm also really excited to dig in on some of these really interesting issues. So Sarah and I love this topic because in prior lives, we dealt with firms that were involved in the commercial sector. And Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong, but I didn't even know government contracting was before I started. No, working. I was in the same boat. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think it took me like two years. I was like, "What are you guys talking about? Right. It's business, right? Business is business. It's crazy." And so there's this whole world of labor and employment attorneys that do the normal commercial businesses stuff, right? You do the, uh, you need to know what the Fair Labor Standards Act is, and you need to know what Title Seven is, and you need to know what minimum wage is. And then there's government contracting. <laughs> right. So as complicated as all those labor and employment issues can be, the rules for government contractors, I'm sorry to say, are even more intricate. And one of the big roadmaps that guides a lot of these rules is the federal acquisition regulation, which in particular, we're going to talk a lot today about FAR Part 22, which just governs a lot of these different requirements that we're going to touch on. And these are specifically unique to federal government contractors, and it includes provisions from anywhere, sick leave to human trafficking to service contract standards. The list goes on and on. And we'll talk about some of the more common high-hitting issues that you've got to be aware of. So we're going to dive in and kind of get our hands on some of these interesting provisions, and we hope that you find it interesting. Yeah, so Sarah, if you are a government contractor, you only have to file for Part 22? Like, you can just forget about the Fair Labor Standards Act and um, Title Seven and all that other stuff? I wish that it was that easy, right? <laughs> so unfortunately, this is one of those areas where you just got to layer requirements on requirements on requirements, just like you would do as a commercial business. You have to keep track of your state law requirements and your federal law requirements. The same applies to government contractors. So you got to layer a blanket over all of those federal requirements and specifically apply the government contracting requirements. Yeah. So the way we're going to kind of structure this today as we walk through this is, first of all, we're going to keep in mind that the purpose of this is to help commercial businesses or businesses that are new to federal government contracting to be able to issue spot and to think about the different types of issues you're going to run into as a government contractor. 
you are not going to walk away having the know all for every single topic because we could spend days and days and days on that. So the goal today is to start thinking about the ways that you need to integrate your teams so that everybody understands what you could be getting into and to help you kind of spot the specific issues. So we're going to give you a broad overview of kind of what's in that federal acquisition regulation. And then we're going to move into how companies get in trouble, because I think it's one thing to tell you what's in there. And it's another thing to understand how it comes up and how you can get into trouble. So that's, is that fair? Yep. I think that's fair. I mean, it's not fair because it's a pain, but it, it, it'll pay to read. You'll learn the theme through all of this. Just read the FAR, read the contract, and you will be fine. Right. So, you know, that's an interesting point just to kick off what's in FAR Part 22, but reading the contract is critically important. And I bet if you asked your human resources team, many of them have never read a government contract before, right? It's usually your BD folks or your executive team that's looking at these opportunities thinking, oh, this is going to be fantastic. Let's dive in. Let's go after this opportunity. Your HR team usually gets the heads up when you need to start recruiting. And usually that's where we see them completely lose their minds because the, you know, because the, uh, the team has not thought about all of the things that HR has to think about when they're onboarding. So let's dive into the overview. So the federal acquisition regulation in part 22 and part 23 with lots of references, internal references, if you have the pleasure of ever reading for part 22, has all of this fun stuff. And the first kind of broad area we wanted to talk about today is the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Program. Sarah, what's that? That is a fun um, office within the Department of Labor that is basically your EEOC for government contractors. And this is your regulator that's going to ensure that companies and contractors are enforcing those requirements with respect to affirmative action and equal opportunity. Unfortunately, it's not a one-size-fits-all rule. There are a lot of different uh, thresholds. So depending on the size of your company, the amount of business, business that you're performing, that can really have an impact on which laws or requirements are imposed under the OFCCP. One of the biggest uh, headaches for clients is going to be an affirmative action plan. And affirmative action plans are only required of businesses that have at least 50 employees and meet certain thresholds for the amount of contracts that they are requisitioned. This is a really important document. There was recently an update to the regulations that require uh, additional um, reporting obligations for your AAP. So if you have more than 50 employees, if you're getting into the government contractor space, it's really important to know about this requirement ahead of time because you have to create a narrative, you have to create certain statistics. It's not something that you can just, I mean, I suppose you could try to throw it together with some Mm -hmm. bubble gum and shoestring, but um, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And what kind of catches contractors or companies that are getting into contracting by surprise is that it's not just whether you complete an AAP, because even if you're under 50 employees, there are certain steps you have to take. And there's language that has to be in your job requisitions. There's language that has to be in your subcontracts regarding your equal employment opportunity obligations. 
you have to track employment. You have to use self-identification forms and keep them in a certain way. Uh, So it's not just about creating this affirmative action handbook, for lack of a better word. It's all the stuff that goes into it. And contractors will often say to me, I mean, and believe me, we have run into clients that have been in contracting for several years and are like, what is this? Um, So it's not just for new contractors, but it can cost you a lot of money if you get an investigation. And what's unique about the OSBCP, unlike the EEOC, is that the EEOC doesn't often knock on your door and come in and go through all of your job requisitions and see if you statistically not hired women or veterans or people with disabilities, right? They don't do that. There's a complaint that's issued first, usually at the EEOC, and then the EEOC looks at it. Here, there's a list that comes out every year. And as a federal government contractor, you can just pop onto this list and here they come to evaluate a piece of your OFCCP compliance program or all of it. And it can, if they determine that you're statistically out of line or you're not doing some of what you should be doing, then they can assess back wages, penalties. You can be forced to enter into compliance plans where they're evaluating your compliance for a number of years. So this can be big stuff. This is also the testing ground for different initiatives that the administration wants to test. So, Sarah, I'm thinking about things like equal pay. It was the first place we saw sexual Mm -hmm. orientation and gender identity. And the director at OFCCB is now Jenny Yang, and she has explicitly stated, and we've already seen examples of this, that she is hardcore going after equity and inclusion and pay transparency. And so these are things that they are pushing the envelope even as we speak. And it's really important that you stay ahead of it. Again, this is not common sense issues. So if you say, oh, I don't have to worry about it. I'm not discriminating against anyone. I'll be fine. That is not accurate because there are specific requirements. You have to put certain notices in your job postings, in your subcontracts that are not intuitive, that if you do not check these boxes, you could be looking, unfortunately, at a hefty fine. The other thing that the OFCCP has the pleasure of doing is acting as an investigatory arm for complaint, right? So every year we get a number of these through the door, but essentially what can happen is an employee comes and complains that their bonus isn't big enough. Well, that is a pay transparency issue under an executive order. And if all of a sudden they are terminated because they're a complainer or something happens to them in the employment realm, they cannot, they can go and complain to the OFCCP. If they think that there's a religious discrimination issue or a race or gender issue, they can avail themselves as of the OFCCP or the EEOC or both, right? So um, it's also an investigatory arm. So that is kind of um, the first kind of big area. Sarah, mm-hmm. did you want to say anything else about? No, I think that's good. That's, those are the high level issues of affirmative action for government contractors. The next issue that is really unique in the government contractor space is gonna be wage and hour issues. So Nicole, what are some examples of wage and hour issues that you might run into as a government contractor? There are so many, <laughs> this is such a good, this is, This is the area I think that Sarah and I both really, really enjoy working in and a lot of our clients perhaps do not enjoy working in. So like in the commercial world, there is a set of minimum wage rules, 
there's overtime requirements. And in government contracting, the type of contracts you get or are awarded or go after and the kind of work you do can significantly impact whether or not you have different wage and hour obligations. And so if you are in the service world, meaning you're providing maintenance work, um, janitorial work, food services work, any type of clerical work, for example, that's going to fall into a services world. And that's where the Service Contract Act comes into play. It's known in the FAR as Service contract labor standards. They they changed the names. The other fun part about this is they change these bar names sometimes. So it used to just be the Service Contract Act. And you see it referred to as the McNamara Harris Service Contract Act of 1965. Also has not been updated much since 1965, but it is in the FAR, the Service Contract Labor Standards. And that you are going to see it referenced in the contract documents. Remember, all of these are creatures of contract. And so you are, you're going to look to your contract often first to see what is in there. And that service contract act is going to lay out minimum wages and fringe benefit requirements for those service workers, in addition to holidays, vacation, et cetera, et cetera. There's also the Davis-Bacon Act, which covers prevailing wages and fringe benefits in the construction world. In addition to that, there's the Contract Work Hours and Safety Standards Act, which provides liquidated damages if you fail to pay the correct overtime. There is the, you know, Copeland Anti-Kickback Act in there, which covers kickbacks. Don't do that. Don't ask for money back when you pay someone a prevailing wage. And then connected to these types of contracts are more wage requirements. There are sick leave requirements non-displacement rules where you might be required to offer a right of first refusal to incumbent employees or employees that worked on the contract before. Those final rules will hit this summer. They have not hit yet. Yeah, there's been a hiatus for the past, what, two years? years. We used to have a non-displacement requirement. The Trump administration revoked that obligation. But for anyone out there who thought it was gone, it's coming back sometime this summer. And then you also have a minimum wage rule for government contractors as well, which is $15 an hour starting this year. Some contracts that are legacy contracts have a different wage rate. And so to Sarah's point on the non-displacement rules, another interesting or not fun component of this is that the tides changes with the administration. So a lot of these rules come into play, not through general legislation, but through executive orders. And so when one administration leaves, the next administration can revoke those orders and often does the first couple weeks of the administration. And then they can implement new executive orders, which then go through a rulemaking process. You get comments on those rules. The final rule is issued. And then a new federal acquisition regulation is often then promulgated and put into the FAR. So it's not just that you learn this once. Being in government contracting is a labor of learning and love, Mm -hmm. and you kind of always have to be up to date on what rule changes are occurring. Um, Sarah, what's some of the most difficult issues in the wage and hour stuff, do you think, for new contractors? I think part of what I hear being a source of frustration often is this idea that, well, well, that's not how the industry operates. 
that's not what everyone else is doing. That's not what our competitor over there, um, ABC Construction, is doing. And it's important to remember that these rules apply regardless of what standard in your industry and failing or really ignoring them is probably not a good long-term strategy. Of course, there's risk in operating your business. You can do that however you want, but it's important to actually read the rules. And so if you read something that doesn't sound right or doesn't sound like it would be sustainable for your business, it's really worth looking a little bit closer and making sure that it's not something that five years from now, a DOL investigator is going to show up and say, well, you weren't doing this correctly for the last five years. So not only are we going to require back wages, but we're going to move for suspension or debarment. Right. So that's what what's so the Service Contract Act, if you have severe violations or really any violation, the Department of Labor, which is the agency in charged with enforcement of all of these rules, really, they're going to come in and they there is actually a requirement that they refer you for suspension and debarment unless they put in their report that they recommend against it. And so yeah, I would say that's rare, but if you don't respond to the Department of Labor or they believe that you have been engaging in intentional misconduct, they can, they're can they supposed to refer you automatically for suspension and debarment. In the Davis-Bacon Act, it's a little bit different. They have to make a recommendation for suspension and debarment, but they will in severe cases or particularly when you ignore them. They, they hate being ignored and they will file a lawsuit against you and then file for suspension and debarment. The other thing that's a little bit troubling to prime contractors sometimes is this whole idea that they are responsible for everything, right? I mean, it's like, what do you mean my subcontractor didn't pay the required wages and fringe benefits? And then all of a sudden, the Department of Labor is knocking on their door. Well, fun fact, if you are the prime contractor, you have to make sure that all this stuff gets flowed down into a subcontract so that you put that obligation on them. And even when you do that, if they violate the rules, if they don't pay, the Department of Labor can come after you as the prime contractor. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it can be scary. So make sure you hire responsible subcontractors. Responsible subcontractors in the Davis-Bacon Act world, which is also no longer referred to as no. Davis-Bacon, of course. Construction labor standards. <laughs> <laughs> they are especially um, hard-nosed about your requirements when it comes to certified payroll. And so you may know if you're operating the construction industry as a federal contractor, there's an obligation to submit weekly payroll certifications, not just on the part of the prime, but on the part of your sub or anyone who's performing the work. That obligation is truly important and they will come off to the prime if the sub is not doing it correctly. I know a lot of clients who basically sit and supervise that process. Everyone come into the office on the same day, fill out certified payroll because it's so important that they get that right. And you have FCA implications, that's False Claims Act implications if you submit incorrect data. So it's really important to be on top of these issues. Every single certified payroll that's submitted under the Davis-Bacon Act is a certification to the federal government that you are compliant with the Davis-Bacon Act and that you paid what you said you paid on that certified payroll and you classify people correctly like you've listed them in the certified payroll. And you submit that to the federal government. If you get that wrong, a lawsuit can be brought against you either by an employee in the KTAM action on behalf of the federal government or by the federal government itself, usually as a result of some sort of 
OIG audit or investigator general audit, and or the Department of Labor finds the errors in an investigation, it's a big problem. So it's really important. Even if you're a penny off, that's right. a problem. I feel like we're really doom and gloom. I wasn't expecting all of this. Yeah. <laughs> I, know. I know. I mean, look, the, the nice thing, I suppose a positive about prevailing wage rules is the whole idea behind them was to put federal contractors on kind of an, an equal playing field as far as wages so that there wasn't a race to the bottom. And so you know, and this is important when you're going out to bid on work, you know that everyone, if they've classified people correctly, which is the big question mark, make sure that you know you've read the performance of work statement, you know how people are supposed to be classified, you're confident in how people are supposed to be classified, and you're paying them according to these wage determinations. And if everybody is doing that, there should be a minimum level of wages and fringe benefits that are bid, right? So the benefit of that is that you're walking into a workforce usually where you have a general expectation of what the wage and fringe benefits are going to be. And you have a workforce usually, unless you're in construction, I don't think it's quite as common, but you're walking into a workforce that has experience operating this contract. Like mm -hmm. they know how this work is done. They know the actors and the players and, and that can be a huge benefit. And if the agency is doing it right, uh, they that workforce will be entitled at the cost to the government uh, uh, to wage increases every year or every other year. As those wage determinations change. Yeah. Now, one of the complaints that clients have had over time is that the wage determinations have gotten behind market, which right now is a is a good, probably a good time to mention. And I think Sarah alluded to this earlier, that if you don't think that the base wage determination in your contract is enough to actually hire and retain people, you should be taking that into account when you bid on this thing because the market is what it is right now. And so all these wage determinations are, are minimum wages. They're not maximums, right? So if you get on site, you can't hire people because everybody's making more than the wage. We're seeing this a lot mm -hmm. in like HVAC and maintenance contracts and things like that. The cost of labor is skyrocketing. Right. You know, and all once you bid this thing, you're stuck usually for a base year plus four, right? So you're <laughs> stuck with this thing. You have to be confident that you can, labor is probably your highest cost of these mm -hmm. contracts. And the government is not going to cover that difference. So if you, we've had some folks who have said, oh, it's fine. I, I couldn't hire anyone at this $15 an hour. So I, I had to hire them at 20. So I'm sure the government will do the right thing. They understand it's hard to find labor. They'll pay me back. No, that's, that's right. not. Right. And so we've talked, a, we've talked quite a bit about our hourly folks. So I consider our hourly folks, right? Our construction, repair, laborers, service folks. But there are a few provisions of FAR Part 22. OSPCP being one that we've already talked about, and not that apply generally to the whole workforce. So you see a lot of contracts today that are for, for professional services, and they are generally what we're talking about is mostly exempt folks under the Fair Labor Standards Act, right? So they're going to be contracts that are primarily for professional type services. Doesn't eliminate your requirement to classify people as hourly, non-exempt, or salaried exempt under the Fair Labor Standards Act, right? We still have those requirements, 
but the contract is not issued under the Service Contract Act. It's not issued under the Davis-Bacon Act. And there are some co components of this federal acquisition regulation that apply here. And a lot of those, some of them we've already talked about, but depend on the type of cost contract you have, right? So this is where we start... We're not going to get into this too deep. Hopefully, our other the other series uh, will get into some of these costing issues, or maybe not. Right? <laughs> but you know, your contracts are issued like on firm fixed price, meaning this is the price for each year, and this is what I'm going to do this contract for. And there are other types of contracts, right? There are um, time and materials contracts and other types of on an hourly basis type cost builds that a government client might issue a solicitation to build your cost a different way. And in those particular types of contracts, you want to be thinking about, okay, do I have any um, defense contract audit agency requirements for timekeeping and accounting? Do I have to have an approved timekeeping system? Do I have to be training my people on how to appropriately keep time? Which is a good idea in government contracting regardless because you have to build your rates is your rates in a certain way. So you you need to be thinking about you know, do my people know how to charge their time to the right charge codes? Do they know how to keep their time on a daily basis, regardless of whether they're exempt or non-exempt, hourly or salaried? They might have to be keeping their time. And it can have implications for salaried people on what we call uncompensated overtime, which is this general concept, a little bit difficult to explain, but I'm gonna give it a shot. Good old college try. But it basically means like, look, you're paying this person on a salary basis, but you're having them work 60 hours a week, not 40 hours a week. But I'm paying government. The government says, I'm paying 60 hours. I want to get the same benefit you get, which is I only want to pay them for 40 hours. I don't want to pay them for 60. You get to just pay them for 40 because they're salaried. I don't want to pay you for 60 because that means you're getting a price windfall, mm -hmm. right? You're getting a whole bunch of extra money because you don't have to pay these people for overtime because they're salary. So your choice is one of two things. Your choice is to pay them straight time for any overtime that they work or to dilute your rates to the government. Those are your two choices. And you need to be careful because this is one of those areas where the Fair Labor Standards Act can collide because you don't want to start treating your people like they're hourly because that can destroy your exemption. So you wanna make sure that those policies are structured very carefully to account for the fact that, no, these are salaried folks. I am just gonna pay them straight time overtime for a limited, not too many numbers of hours. Mm -hmm. You want your offer letters set up still to be on a salary basis. It's very easy in government contracting to start treating everybody like they're an hourly worker. And that gets us into trouble with the Department of Labor. Right. What was the lesson that we harped on at the very beginning of this podcast? Just because you're a government contractor does not mean that all those other legal obligations disappear. One of my biggest pet peeves in this industry is that I will often hear contractors say to me, well, I don't have to pay employees overtime because the contract doesn't allow it. Just because the government isn't going to pay you overtime rates doesn't mean that your obligation to pay employees overtime if they're non-exempt evaporates. You still have that obligation. So you want to make very careful decisions about how employees are working, how they're classified, and whether they're entitled to overtime. Right. I think that sums up wage and hour issues. 
So we have kind of one other broad category that we wanted to cover before we kind of move into how this, how you can avoid these types of mistakes, the like common mistakes. And that is this other area. And it really sits in FAR Part 23, not FAR Part 22. Um, and FAR Part 23 is weird because it's mainly a section about environmental laws and regulations. Right. If you look at it, you're like, and then all of a sudden the Drug-Free Workplace Act is thrown think, in there. I think they put the vaccines. And the vaccine stuff. It's the catch-all. Yeah. There's also a weird provision about cell phone uses, but it doesn't mean anything. It's like, please don't use a cell phone while you drive. It's just like a weird, like, okay. Someone thought this would be fun to put in the bar, but it doesn't mean anything. But what's the Drug-Free Workplace Act? So the Drug-Free Workplace Act is a legislation that was passed in, what is it, the 19... I have no idea. So I don't know. 60s, I think. <laughs> oh, no, I, I think it was the 60s. Or 80s, maybe. Just, I bet it was I that. Just say no to drugs. You know, the, the yeah. hard-boiled egg and the fried <laughs> egg. Um, so, yeah, call back to your 80s visions of drugs. Unbeknownst to a lot of people, the drug-free workplace does act, does not say that employees cannot engage in drug use or alcohol use. What it does say is that they cannot engage in drug use while performing government work or while on a government work site. They also can't sell their pot at work. Yeah, you, can't sell, <laughs> you can't uh, have possess, distribute. You can't distribute all those things. All those things that you think of are bad, you generally should not do in the office. Hey, here's something that is similar. Government contractors work the same way. You don't want people engaging in the use of or distribution of drugs during work hours or at the work site. And that is really the important rule when it comes to the Drug-Free Workplace Act. There are also certain reporting requirements that go hand in hand uh, with these obligations. So if in the unlikely event that someone is, what's the requirement? That someone is- Distributing, I think, or engaging in this type of- They're convicted of having engaged in one of these prohibited activities while at the work site, if they are convicted of that, then you have to notify the government within five days of the conviction. Right. I think that's the reporting requirement. You also it's have very to have rare to have the yeah. I've literally I've never heard of this. Yeah, happening. it's very sure it exists out there. But the so when I first started in this field, the questions that I got were. I had my pre-employment drug screen and like 11, 12 years ago, everyone was doing pre-employment drug screens. Like doesn't really matter the type of work you were doing. Everybody did a pre-employment drug screen. And if someone popped positive, usually for marijuana use or something like that, they would say, okay, Nicole, I'm good. I'm good not to hire them, right? I'd say, yeah, you don't have time. <laughs> but boy, how the world has changed. The times they are changing. Now the calls we get are like, they tested positive, but I really need them. <laughs> and, you know, it was pre-employment. They're telling me that it's medical marijuana, that they don't use during the workday, that it's just mm-hmm. on the evenings and weekends. They've been prescribed. They've got their medical marijuana card. All of the issues, Sarah. What are you thinking about with, when you're talking to clients about this? Well, first of all, another common mistake when it comes to the Drug-Free Workplace Act, it does not require drug testing. Some contracts do require testing, but there's no actual requirement under the act itself to test employees or applicants. So that's that's the first step. The second step is 
again, this is a law that just applies to the work that's being performed. And so if an employee is not engaged in drug use while they're performing work or while they're at the government work site, you are fine. You are still in compliance with that act. And then lastly, there's this consideration, which is that over the last, what, 10, 15 years, approximately 30 states have legalized the use of either recreational marijuana or medical marijuana. And a lot of these states that uh, apply the medical marijuana provisions prohibit discrimination on the basis of that use. And so you run into, suppose you do not want to hire this individual. You mentioned that this individual who applied had a medical marijuana card. You could run up against state law requirements that say you cannot discriminate against someone. Not to mention the Americans with Disabilities Act. That's true. <laughs> I mean, that's like, Although I think there's specifically an exception in the that, ADA. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it creates some really complex issues for employers because it, it really calls you to evaluate your testing programs, evaluate what states that you have employees in, because as a government contractor, you often end up with employees in lots of different states. Mm -hmm. New York, for example, has you cannot pre-employment drug screen unless you have uh, people in specific industries. Yes, yeah, they require a security clearance, for example. Right. And so it really is a good time to look at your, your drug screening and testing policies and determine kind of what your thresholds are. Many states say that employers can have their own policies regarding whether someone tests or doesn't test and whether you have to allow someone to, to use in their recreational time or not. So you want to look at how state law interacts with your obligations, but it's not going to be enough to just point to the Drug-Free Workplace Act. You really have to look at all these things closely. And a lot of our clients are going to, unless it's a safety-sensitive position or a secure cleared position, which the security clearance process kind of takes care of some of that, they're really going to no pre-employment drug screen post-accident reasonable suspicion testing. And if someone pops positive in that process, it doesn't matter if they have a medical marijuana card at all because the testing, frankly, is not good enough to, to demonstrate temporal proximity. So, but you really need to look at you know, what's going to be our policy so that you don't run into disparate impact problems, right? Because you don't wanna, that's why we don't wanna apply policies differently to different groups of people because we start treating people differently, right? So. Exactly. Often gov government contractors want to say, well, I'm a government contractor, so I have to terminate you. That's another point about it. If someone does pop positive and don't have good reasons for using whatever drug, you don't have an obligation technically to terminate them, but you do have an obligation to discipline. Right. And so really thinking about how you're going to react in those uh, circumstances is important. Before they come up and everybody's panicking. Mm -hmm. I think we had about, I don't know, we could talk about this for hours, but I think we're wrapping up our 30 slash 45 minutes of conversation. <laughs> well, let's talk a few minutes about kind of like how this comes up and how people get into, into trouble. The biggest, I guess, if I had a couple of pieces of advice and maybe Sarah, then you can lend your piece of, of advice is, make sure your entire team is talking to each other, right? So the most critical piece is that your BD team from the outset should be talking to your HR team because your HR team is really going to have the expertise to be able to help you look at a solicitation and determine whether someone is exempt or non-exempt 
or what kind of recruiting challenges you're going to have. Is there an incumbent workforce that you might be able to draw from or not? You know, what kinds of minimum wage rules you might have in different states? Because remember, in labor and employment, it's the most generous of all of these things that apply. So you could have state wage and hour rules, county wage and hour rules, federal wage and hour rules for the duration of five years in many cases. So your whole team needs to be on board to talk about all of this stuff, to read the solicitation carefully, and to ask, please, please, please ask any questions that are, might be am ambiguous in that solicitation. Absolutely. Um, it's really important. The silo, the silo approach is not going to help help here. Often, especially in the case of companies who are just joining the government contracting space, the feeling is that you need to do whatever it takes to win this work. As long as you win this work, you can, you know, find a profit. The problem is, especially in the labor and employment side of things, if you do that but don't necessarily understand what you're committing to, you could end up upside down with respect to whether you have an obligation to pay SCA wages, Davis-Bacon wages, or any of those other issues that we've talked about. So it's really important from the get-go that you understand what those requirements are, not just because uh, you could get sideways with DOL, but because you can really learn about smart and business-savvy ways to kind of describe your proposal in a way that's going to edge out the competition. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also important to understand how quickly you can grow in government contracting, mm -hmm. right? So unlike what often happens in the commercial world, you can be 25 employees one day and 500 six, six months a year later, depending on the type of work that you're picking up. So when you decide to go bid on a new uh, procurement, you should understand what they could mean to you in terms of growth and costs when it comes to labor and employment and people. Are you picking up people in 10 different new states? You know, what kind of subcontractors do you need in place? What kind of wage and hour obligations will occur? Will you need that affirmative action plan in place? How will you need to update your policies and procedures? How are you going to complete onboarding and do it in a way that you're not going to completely mess that Mm -hmm. um, right. I mean, that's a huge piece that gets people um, right. because in that rush to get everybody onboarded and in that growth, the infrastructure isn't set up correctly. Mm -hmm. The HR people are scrambling just to try to keep their heads above water. And that's where things lift the cracks. Right. And for the first time, a lot of companies who previously were just operating out of Maryland are now operating out of Nevada, California, Alaska for some of these government contracts. And I think you touched on a really good point, which is those state laws still apply. It's not just where your corporate headquarters is. It's wherever your employees are based, they're located on a specific work site or if they're working remotely, you have an obligation to comply with those state laws in the state where the work is being performed. The other piece of advice that I would give contractors or commercial businesses getting into government contracting is this whole idea of successor obligations, which mm -hmm. is completely brand new. To, to a lot of you getting into this field. But there are a number of laws that are implicated when one when you are taking over basically the same contract from an incumbent contractor. And the ones that come to mind are the Family and Medical Leave Act. If you're you know, over 50 employees within a 75 mile radius, it's usually like someone has to be employed with you for 12 months or 12, 50 hours in order for this to kick in. 
No, not if they've been an incumbent on this contract. You, they get to take their time served with that predecessor and count it. Yeah. So all of a sudden you walk in and somebody's like, I need maternity leave tomorrow. You're going to have that obligation. And then the other one I was thinking of is USERA. And that USERA provides uh, job security for folks that are in the military. There are a lot of military folks that are in government contracting and they are reservists or they um, have, you know, even volunteer time, right? And so someone could be on USERA leave, you pick up this contract and they show up three months later and say, I get my job back, right? And you say, wait a second. Yes, yes, you do. (laughs) So there's this world of like successor obligations. and, And then again, just as of this probably fall, you could have, if you have a certain type of contract, service contract, acts contract, for example, have an obligation to make offers to those incumbent employees. Right. That's so, going to be a game changer. Any last words of advice, Sarah? No, just <laughs> stay positive. Like I said, it's not point and shoot, but I think there are a lot of great opportunities for businesses out there. A lot of um, new contracts coming up that could benefit from some new contractors in the next. And some new ideas and new ways to do that. So I think the world the world is definitely evolving. The type of work and the way that we work is evolving. And the federal government certainly can use those new ideas because that's frankly how most of the point in federal contracting is to get new ways to organize the work and to do it efficiently. So just to recap what we've talked about, there is a world of labor and employment laws that apply to government contractors specifically. And that's generally housed in the Federal Acquisition Regulation, FAR Part 22, and a little teeny bit of FAR Part 23. And in addition to that, you have all of the normal wage and hour labor and employment, non-discrimination requirements that you have when you place people in different states. It's not like you now don't have to comply with state law. So our goal today, and hopefully we achieved it, was to tell you a little bit about different types of laws that could apply to you and different regulations that could apply to you if you decide to get into federal government contracting. Lots of folks do it. It's Mm -hmm. definitely doable. Just know what you're getting into. And that, I think, was the idea of what we wanted to um, cover today. Yeah, great. All right. Thank you to everyone for listening to us today. And I hope you listen to other podcasts in this series. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks, everyone. This podcast is a Polero Maza production and music credits go to bensound.com. Please subscribe and hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.